Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, it is nearly three o'clock in the morning, and we have all just watched Rafael Nadal do something truly extraordinary, which is a phrase that I and others have said far more than we should ever have been able to say over the course of the last 20 years. But tennis finishing at 1.30 in the morning, and Rafael Nadal doing superhuman things are no longer or <laughs> have never been particularly unusual events and yet we should not take them for granted we should not take what we have seen tonight for granted David Law no no we shouldn't and I'm still struggling to get over the fact that he's here at all and competing properly after what I saw at the end in Rome that looked too far gone an injury or problem uh, a physical impediment for him to be able to perform like this well, that was made to look stupid, wasn't it? I mean, you know, and I think I think most people felt like that coming into this tournament. I don't know too many people who thought he had a realistic chance, um, given given how he looked. Um, but then he worked his way through those early rounds. He's withstood the the Felix Ogelia scene match, which he didn't look very good in, really, for parts of that. But tonight, the way he came out and just took it to Djokovic and just decided. I'm going for it. And um, I, I thought he was trying to win it quick. And uh, like he did two years ago, you know, in the, or a year and a half ago in the October match that they played. And, and it was very similar, wasn't it, to 6-2-3 love. Um, he was just pummeling Djokovic. And he was shortening the points and flattening it out. And absolutely blistering shots left, right and centre. But it was almost more surprising what happened after that. How, how he won when he didn't win that second set, I, I can't get my head around that. Matt, when we watched Rafael Nadal win the Australian Open in January of this year, just doing the completely unthinkable, I mean, A, reaching that final in the first place, having been in absolutely no form or fitness before the tournament, but doing what he did in that final, coming from two sets to love down to win it. We decided we would 
we would never again back against Rafael Nadal, that we would forever think anything was possible. And yet, a few months later, this felt impossible, didn't it? I know he hasn't won the tournament yet, and he may not, but it feels a little bit like he has in some ways. Yeah. We're idiots. We're fools. <laughs> Matt, did you think like we thought? Because you're... You're usually the one who says, no, no, it's Nadal at Roland Garros. I always say that, except I didn't say it this year. And that is despite seeing what I saw in Australia, as Catherine says. I was so taken by how much pain he was in in Rome, as you said, just a couple of weeks ago. And I didn't think this was possible. You you then throw in the fact he's playing playing Djokovic at night. I don't know what we were so worried about. I mean, <laughs> I mean and again, it's a, it's a case of honestly doubting him because I would have had probably the same feelings going into the 2020 final that you mentioned, David, and he came out in this one like he came out in that one, as you said. Just a blistering start, absolutely vintage Nadal for the first hour. While there was still blue sky above the stadium, he was incredible. And then, honestly, the the sky turned black, it, it turned dark, and there was 45 minutes, 50 minutes there when Nadal barely won games, you know, as, as Djokovic fought back in that second set. And I did think... Ah, oh, okay, maybe these are the conditions slowing down. Maybe this is all favouring Djokovic. He, he was starting to time his returns and starting to dictate with the forehand. And I started to think, okay, Nadal's incredible, but this is the match I was expecting. Novak Djokovic being able to handle him. And then the start of the third set happened and Nadal goes up a double break. And I just didn't see that happening at all. And then the latter half of the match was the Nadal we've seen this year in 2022, him doing things which I no longer thought were possible for him to do, and yet he keeps doing them. He's he's extraordinary. It was the third set that was the biggest surprise of the match to mm. me. Their, their last two meetings at this tournament, Nadal has made strong, powerful starts in both here last year, when, of course, he went on to lose that epic match to Djokovic, and in 2020, when he went on to to continue what he did in the opening set and, and roll over Novak Djokovic, frankly, in that uh, in that October final. So, yes, although it was quite startling seeing him do that, given everything we've said about his, his form coming in here, and I think Djokovic looked quite startled. We've seen it before, Djokovic coming back in the second set. We've seen that before. Rafael Nadal just squashing that momentum that Djokovic had gained in that second set and... And as you said, Matt, making it look like the the tide has has turned here, especially with the the weather changing. That was just an extraordinary feat of tennis and of match management, which is such an unsexy term, isn't it? But it's relevant there. Yeah, Nadal Nadal made it sexy tonight somehow, didn't he? He you know he went a double break up in all three of those opening sets obviously in the second set he he squandered it he was three love double break up in that second set and Djokovic went on to win it 6-4 and you're thinking or Rafa fans are thinking uh-oh well it, it felt like last year at that mm. point the fact because it was quite similar in as much as Nadal had got a big lead and yet Djokovic still seemed to be playing well even though he's 6-2 three love behind 
he felt like he was playing all right to me. He was hitting the ball nicely. Um, and then that started to tell. He came back into it. Nadal's level dropped. How could it not drop, given how well he'd started? But I I did that second set commentary on BBC Radio, 88 minutes. I mean, that is that is quite quite a feat to, to try to keep up with him uh, when they're going like that. Um, and I came off to kind of a break, and I, I thought... I thought I would get to do another set, but that it would be straightforward for Djokovic from one set all. Really did. And um, Djokovic came out flat, relatively speaking, in that third set. He, he, I didn't see that coming at all. Um, and I, and, I, and he, he was missing a little bit, and that was all Nadal needed. He, he, like you say, he just jumped on him then, got that lead. And then in the fourth set... Nadal became the hunter because he wasn't a breakup, and that was a very interesting dynamic to see the Djokovic fight three up, and you're absolutely sure this is going the distance, and Nadal wouldn't let that set; he just wouldn't let it go. And we both felt, Catherine, we were watching in the stadium that fourth set. We both felt that Nadal had a physical edge in the mm. fourth set. You know, Novak Djokovic hasn't played a five-set match since last year's U.S. Open obviously because he wasn't able to play in Australia. So it's been a long time since, he was been, he, since he'd been pushed this much in a match. And it wasn't that long ago that we saw Djokovic unable to physically stand a three-set match, let alone a five-set match. And all of his preparation over the clay court season had been pointing in the direction that by the time he got to Roland Garros, he was going to be fine in five-set matches. But we hadn't seen it. And look, he wasn't completely gassed I think he would have had something left for a fifth set but it doesn't need to take much Mm. and I've just felt like Nadal was the more energetic the more lively he was going after the ball more in those final stages and I I really think that played a part I think it made a difference for Nadal and that that I mean you go on such an emotional journey in these matches don't you you get to the end and you're like who was I four hours ago when I was having these list of thoughts that turned out to be so completely wildly wrong and misguided. I remember we we were lucky enough to watch portions of that match with Mary Carrillo. And after that incredible first set from Rafael Nadal, we had some discussion or I listened to you and Mary have some discussion about how that m- might largely be down to Nadal thinking he needed to do that because he can't, because of the foot, he can't win in the longer haul or he's less likely to win the longer the haul is. And Matt said, yeah, like starting your set with Born to Run. And I thought, that's an analogy that we're going to be leading the podcast with. And I thought, mm, yeah, that, yeah that's, a, that's a very negative spin on an amazing start to the match. But it really held up for me. And there we are sort of three hours later, what felt like three lifetimes later. And... You know, heading into that fourth set tiebreak, Djokovic was shaking out his legs, stretching in a way that indicated he didn't have cramp, but it looked sort of pre-cramp stages to me. He was weary. He was really weary. And I, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. But then, but then equally, I thought, well, of course, you know, it was only a few weeks ago we saw him completely gassed in third sets against... Alejandro Davidovich Fakina in Monte Carlo and Andre Rublev in, in Belgrade. And it's actually the more extraordinary thing is that he's got himself 
in any kind of five set shape for this Grand Slam, really. So it shouldn't be a surprise to to have seen him that way. And as Matt said, I don't think he would have fallen apart physically in the fifth set, but I would have given the edge to Rafael Nadal, which is is immense, really, given what he's what he's managing with his foot. Mm. Well, from five three when he broke back there, and and. It really felt on, even in the, even at the start mm. of that game, because of Nadal was getting to thirty all on those games, uh, those return games, despite being a breakdown, and he was hitting out, and and there was just something in his body language that he he still felt there was something there for him in that set, and I think he could probably sense from Djokovic that Djokovic was pulling the trigger quite early mm. in rallies as well. Um, and he and he, he must have felt good enough, because, and and then once it once it went into that tiebreak, just didn't see it happening at all for Djokovic. He did really well to sort of narrow the gap, you know, and, and make it close because what, what was it six one at one stage, and it was six four at the end. But um, no, that was one of Nadal's great performances. It was their fifty ninth meeting as you've pointed out David the head to head does not fit on one page Hannah was <laughs> Hannah was asking something uh, um on our whatsapp group earlier on today about about their head to head and <laughs> David just sent screenshots sent photos of the head to head I haven't got time Hannah <laughs> draw through all two pages of 59 matches too long didn't read exactly um did we see that's see- what that stands for. I've been wondering for, for years. <laughs> Did we see anything different or unexpected tactically tonight from either of them? Or do we know what we're getting from these two? And you might get a slightly different riff on it, but it's basically, you know, this is how these matches are played against one another. Did anybody try anything different tonight? I find it very hard to tell in kind of in the moment. You're just so wrapped up by the emotion of it all. I felt like Djokovic wasn't using the drop shot as much as he did in in the 2020 final, for example. Um, I was just, you know, talking about the sort of history of their rivalry. Something Nadal said in the Spanish portion of his press conference tonight was that he felt this was the second time he'd really been the underdog against Novak Djokovic at Roland Garros. And the other one was the 2015 quarterfinal, which coincidentally I was also at. That was when I came to Roland Garros as a fan. And Djokovic destroyed Nadal that day. It really did. You know, he, he beat him handily and it was jarring to see Nadal lose that way on the court Philippe Chatrier. And we talk about the incredible things Nadal is doing this year alone, 2022. But to me, it's also completely remarkable that we are seven years on from that match where Nadal looked a shadow of himself and he is playing tennis like this. I think, you know, we can, we can talk about the sort of individual tactics of a, of a match, but Nadal has not reinvented himself as a tennis player over the last seven years, but he's added to his game, he's improved his game, he's figured out a way to get the best out of himself while he's in his 30s. And to me, that is remarkable. If you'd said to me on that day, seven years ago, that in seven years' time you would see Nadal beat Djokovic in the same round at Roland Garros, I would have thought that's not possible because Nadal's career looked almost 
done. You mm. know, he was so handily beaten that Confidence day. Confidence crisis at that mm. point. He was. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I was talking about how I listened to episode one of the podcast the other day. <laughs> and at that point, Nadal had got six Roland Garros titles. Now he's got 13. Um, but actually, the, the one thing that was different today that I don't recall ever seeing, and, and admittedly, I'm watching this from the fifth floor of Court Philip Chatrier. So I'm a long way away. But my sense was that there was e- needle between those two in that full set. And they were circling marks at each other and they were going up and inspecting them more. And I just... It, it wasn't a warm embrace at the end, was, was I it? I was going to say for, that. We all know they're not, you know, they're not mates. But for players that have met 59 times and who, you know, will be defined one another by one another in 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 many ways, you know, once their careers are are done and in, in the history books. And that could have been their last ev- ever meeting. It wasn't a warm embrace at well, all. And there's a, was there was brief. so much at stake tonight mm. because, you know, Nadal's in a race against time here. He hasn't got long left, really, has he? I, I mean, I, even to my eyes, he hasn't got mo- long left. And I know you both went in the press conference and can tell me about the impressions you got from that. But I saw them in when they were coming out in the, the corridor and they, they never even met eyes and they were right next to each other. There was not even an, an acknowledgement of each other. And I, I just got the sense that they were aware of the stakes. They know where they stand in history. Now this really is at a premium. And also I think back to the Australian open this year, Nadal's comments about Djokovic. I, I felt at the time, I think I said it on the podcast there will always be respect between them, absolutely. But I, I felt in Australia like Nadal distant, distanced himself a bit from Djokovic. He just said, I don't agree with how he's handled this. Um, and yeah, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't sure how to put it. I wasn't sure. It, didn't, it wasn't aggro. It wasn't... Um, needle's a great but word. But needle's a great mm. word. There was, a, there was a slightly simmering tension. And I felt in the press conferences, they weren't throwing praise at each other mm. you know there was again there's immense respect there's absolutely that's always going to be there but I agree I do think that was a bit of a difference tonight a few a few more topics to cover on this match before we move on to other very very dramatic events of the day in Paris the crowd you're a very good gauge of of crowds I think David obviously it was a, a pro Rafael Nadal crowd I I think Pretty much whoever he'd be playing, it it would be maybe if he was against a Frenchman. Although even against Corentin Moutet the other night, it was, you know, maybe fifty fifty. Um, did did it ever cross the line into disrespectful for you? Well, it was it was difficult to tell, but there were things happening that Djokovic was clearly getting wound up by, and there were a couple of points he won where he would win them and then almost turn immediately to a section of the. The, the support who he I assume thinks were getting unnecessarily and, and over the top behind Nadal and in my commentary I said he's turned to them and he said come on then I'll take you all on and and I thought he, he's not happy here with with some of the stuff he's hearing but look we've we've seen that before and and it invariably seems to bring out the, the very best in him an edge that you you don't get unless he's wound up um Look, the French crowd are on the edge generally when they're into it, and I and I love them for it. I, I've just been completely 
swept along with that because this is my first ever trip to to the French Open. But I'm not hearing individual things what is being what are being said. I I don't I can I can imagine how you would feel if you if you're trying your heart out and things are being said. It may well have crossed the line, and it's unquestionably for me crossed the line at the U.S. Open for for Djokovic against Federer in the past, and even at Wimbledon once. Um, I I, th- I thought, come on. You know, I don't like the dub, double fault cheering or whatever it might be, and and a bit of baiting of him sometimes. But look, that's that is sport. People are swept up and wound up and getting into it. You can't really have it both ways. Mm. You, you either want people getting involved, and and yeah, if somebody's really abusive, chuck them out. But for the most part, it's it's usually just a noise, isn't it? It might be sometimes at the wrong time, and yeah, it was mostly behind. Nadal, Djokovic had his pocket of support. That's kind of what typically happens, I think, particularly with Nadal at this stage of his career. People know that they've got to make the most of mm. him. And they're, they're now showing that appreciation, I think, for him. Mm. It, was just, it was just a very hasty exit from Djokovic from the Philippe Chatrier court. I thought he might acknowledge the crowd a bit more because, yes, yes, they were pro-Nadal, but he had his pockets of support and... They speak up, don't they? His support. The, yep. the flags that they had were bigger than the, the Spanish flags that were around. You know, they try and they really try and make up for it. The the people that are there supporting him, and he just look. It's understandable. It was close to two o'clock in the morning, but I was just very, you know, I was struck by how hasty. I think it would have hurt. You know, the, the the argument would have gone that yes, Nadal won the Australian Open, but Novak Djokovic wasn't there. So mm. does it really count? The, in the eyes of the Djokovic fans, that would be the case, right? Well, Djokovic was here, and he just got mm. beaten, and, and he got beaten fair and square. I think there was also a time in Paris where Djokovic was really, really popular. You know, I always think back to that ovation he got after he lost to Wawrinka in 2015. Yeah. I think they wanted to see him win here in 2016 when he beat Murray, and, and that was right in the middle of perhaps the the period of Nadal fatigue that we've talked about mm. in the past. But the balance has tipped again with everything Nadal's been through over the last year with his foot. Mm. Well, how about that foot? Because without, without any specific mention of the word foot, it was sort of at the very heart of Nadal's post-match press conference, wasn't it? Because once again, as he did on in his on-court interview with Marion Bartley, as he did after his last round and as he has done consistently at at this tournament in particular, he was talking about how this Roland Garros could be his last and he walks onto court knowing that every match could be his last. And while, while some of that is sort of Rafael Nadal realism, I think that sort of... Um, you know, shrug of the shoulders. Well, you know, he's, you know, that that living in the moment thing that Rafael Nadal has, taking nothing for granted. I also do think it is laden with something here. I'm increasingly getting the impression, and particularly this evening, that there's something more. Um, and we don't want to put words into his mouth, but Matt and I both came away from that press conference this evening thinking this could be it. This could be it. He could be thinking, win here, number 14, number 22, call it a day. The pain's too much to bear anymore. He said 
he he confirmed today he's brought his doctor with him to this tournament. He was talking about the pain he was in in Rome. He said, I've brought my doctor with him here. We're making it work. It's not a long-term solution. He said, we'll keep trying to find long-term solutions. I'll always keep trying. But what he's doing here at this tournament to make himself able to play and able to play four-hour matches like he did today is not sustainable beyond this fortnight. I mean, so I, I assume we don't know what he is actually doing, but I mean, he for all we know, he could be doing a cortisone injection or yeah. something, something like that. I'd imagine like nerve blockers. Or- he said in Spanish that he's not going to talk about it now, but he would reveal everything after the tournament in terms of what he's doing. Right. And I, I agree. I, I left the press conference with the same impression. There's a, there's a very real possibility that this is, well, I put it 22 and out. You know, I'm sort of counting on him winning the next two matches, which is by no means a guarantee. But, you know, I, I don't know how much longer he can stand what he's, what he's doing to himself to get through these matches and these tournaments. That's the impression I have. Hmm. I don't think I can. I don't think I can bear the potential emotion of <laughs> of watching the remainder of Rafael Nadal in this tournament, knowing that or feeling that we don't we don't know it. But bah, I've already experienced too much emotion <laughs> today, let alone this tournament. I'm not sure how much more I can bear. Just before we move on to other matches that we watched today. I mean, we have to cover the fact that it finished at one thirty in the morning and it started at 9 o'clock at night and it didn't even go five sets. And it's tennis being silly, isn't it? And it doesn't yeah. need to be this way. And both players said, this is ridiculous. And what are we doing? What is this sport doing? I'd love somebody to explain it. Um you know, and, and tell me that this is... And look, it was a packed house at the end, um, and I'm sure the viewing figures were good, but surely they'd be better if it was earlier. And surely it was... Be, I don't know, one one thirty in the morning? I mean, and I, I can never get away from the fact that the ultimate in tennis is going to the fifth set tiebreak or the final set tiebreak, and if you go to that, you're going to be after 2 a.m. every single time. Why? Why would you do that? Because tennis is always the answer. There's no other sport that does this. There's no other sport that plans for a 2am finish and has one consistently. Um, but hey, you've, you've heard us talk a lot about tennis finishing late recently. So let's move on to other topics. How about the man that Rafael Nadal will face in the semi-final in three days' time. And that three days could be crucial, couldn't it? There's the extra day off for both these two players. It's it's an even playing field, but obviously feels a lot more crucial for Rafael Nadal, who's played, who's played more than eight hours over the last two rounds. Rafael Nadal will play Alexander Zverev in the semi-finals, who beat Carlos Alcaraz today in four grueling sets. Three hours and 18 minutes, so a damn sight shorter than Djokovic-Nadal, but but Alcaraz and, and Zverev, they play a lot quicker between points than those two, don't they? 6-4, 6-4, 4-6. The comeback looked on from Alcaraz. It went to a fourth-set tie-break. Won by Alexander Zverev, 9-7 in the fourth. This 
I mean, he's the highest seed, third seed, far more, far more Grand Slam pedigree, far more French Open pedigree, and yet it felt like a monumental shock. Yeah, there's a there's an upset. There's no question about it, and I, and I think a little bit we in the media and uh, are responsible for the hype. I mean, look, I said the bloke would win the French Open several months ago. You can all come at me now and laugh. That's fine. I deserve it. But he also did win Barcelona, Miami, Madrid, and he beat Djokovic and Nadal. That's that's not an accident. That's not um, fake uh, success. That is real success. Um, but he looked he looked like a, a novice for those first two sets today. On the big occasion, he's never played in one of these tournaments at this stage before. Zverev was solid in those first two sets. That's all he needed to be. He was solid. And I know that sounds like I'm damning him with faint praise. He did what he needed to do. And and he extracted errors by keeping the ball in. And Alcaraz was terrible for those first mm. two sets. It was smart, wasn't it, from Zverev? He was, look, he served brilliantly. And he served brilliantly throughout. But he recognised that Al- Alcaraz was terrible. It was... he. His powers were gone. The, the touch was still there. He was still getting some dividends from from the drop shot and doing all right at the net. But his baseline game deserted him for two sets. No range whatsoever. It was like it, when it was happening early on in the match, and I discussed this. Um, well, this, no, hang on. It was actually just my brother's take. So I'm just going to just going to adopt it. Um, he looked over-adrenalised at the start and I thought that would that would wear off and he'd settle down. But it didn't. It lasted for two sets. He just had no range on the ground strokes and then and then he stopped trusting them altogether, didn't he, and started doubting himself. And it was, it was very strange to see him, not only without his physical shot-making powers, but, but without his biggest superpower, which is the self-belief and self-assurance. Yes, I said this at the time. It was the first time watching him over the last few months where I felt he looked young. You know, he seemed so ahead of his time. The You know, the fact that he beat Djokovic and Nadal back-to-back in Madrid. You know, you don't do that without, I don't know, experience and belief and maturity on the court. He's He's just been... As much as, as as incredible as his tennis has been, his the way he's carried himself has just been amazing over the last few months. But today, I felt like, particularly in the first two sets, because I did think he got it together um, in the third and fourth sets, and I thought largely played very well in those sets. But I I felt like he panicked a little bit. You know, he was overhitting. He was doing a lot of looking at Juan Carlos Ferrero in the box. A lot of talking to Juan Carlos Ferrero and just just you know maybe it was the weight of expectation maybe it was the occasion I'd, uh, I don't know but it just wasn't the Carlos Alcaraz that we've that we've seen in really big matches over the last few months and yeah quite difficult to explain but you know I guess we were expecting him to do something which he hasn't done yet and um, you know that that's not easy it's tough for us, this one, isn't it? Not only because a lot of us have put our reputations on the line with, with big Alcaraz, Alcaraz predictions, um, 
But tennis has left us in a in a very uncomfortable and unsatisfactory situation with regards to to Alexander Zverev. He's under investigation by the ATP for for allegations of domestic violence. He's on probation um, uh, with the ATP for his behaviour uh, towards a chair umpire in Acapulco earlier on this year and yes those are two things that we can say when we talk about him but it's still it 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 still doesn't satisfactorily lead us to a place where we know how to cover him and what's appropriate and how often to to talk about either of those things and you know we want to we pay him the respect he deserves as a tennis player he absolutely deserves to be in this semi-final he is not banned from playing tennis he is not under any kind of criminal investigation i'm i'm you know he he deserves to be out there and doing this and getting respect for it but i feel very uncomfortable watching it and then talking about it on a podcast and partly that's life you know bad things happen in the world and they can be tough to talk about but partly that's tennis you know leaving us in in an in a particularly awkward situation. Well, well uh, once the investigation is complete, it'll help. Um, uh, in, in terms of when the results come out from that, it'll at least help. Um, and there'll be a bit more, hopefully there'll be clarity then, and, and we'll know where we stand. But at the moment, it is, there is a feeling of limbo about it. I mean, these are allegations he's denied throughout, but he remains, until we get the results of that investigation, we won't, we won't know where what's come of it and we've heard nothing because they're they're going about the business of of doing it I suppose but you're right at the same time here he is playing impressive tennis actually in the end I think it's it's quite something to 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 watch him a little bit like Djokovic in a stadium that is so Alcaraz pro Alcaraz because he because the kid is the one that everybody's excited about and he he does have a he has an immediate connection with people and and to to actually win when all that's going on is very very difficult I would imagine and just just on a note on Alcaraz I think he really he was shown up today tactically including on the final point of the match he kept going to the backhand and what don't you do you don't go to Alexander Zverev's backhand because that thing is secure and solid and reliable. That was bizarre, though, because in the Madrid final against Zverev, all he did was break down the Zverev forehand. It was, you know, it was how to play Zverev 101. You know, he'd done it a few weeks ago. He'd he'd written the playbook on it and it had worked. Why? All I can think of that it was is that, as you described, Matt Panic, you know, fuzzy-headed thinking because it just wasn't none of it was panning out how how he'd planned um but yeah uh, it was it was a frustrating watch from Alcaraz yeah and look I think I think Alcaraz will learn from this and I think ultimately it will end up being an experience he will use you know think about the way he used that experience against Hugo Gaston at the end of last season in in mm. Paris, you know that was quite a scarring experience or moment. You would have thought where he he lost his lead and the crowd was all against him. You know, you felt like they could 
there could be some sort of hangover from that for a few months. And he just has come out this season seemingly toughened by it. So I, I, I think in the long run, this will this will be a good experience for for Alcaraz. But um, I mean, from Zverev's point of view, this was the Grand Slam performance that I feel like we've been waiting years for. I mean, it's the first time he's beaten a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. He was previously 0-11 against them. And yeah, I, I do think in those last couple of sets, Alcaraz played well and Zverev stuck with him, played with him. And I didn't think this performance was going to come, to be honest. Mm. I Certainly not in this match. I, I kind of thought we knew who Zverev was as a as a Grand Slam player. Um, the difficult thing for him is he's, you know, it's, it's only the quarterfinals. He's still got to do it again against Rafael Nadal if he is to take that next step. Here's one for you. Is Alexander Zverev, has he made this stride and beaten this top 10 player because he's on probation and because he can't afford to, to throw his racket and lose his temper Possibly. and hold it together? Is Has that given him a poise that is enabling him to actually get the best out of himself now. Well, if he wins the next one, we'll ask him. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how that'll go, but we'll ask him. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just interesting because he 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 hasn't pushed the boundaries of that probation since he's had this this situation in February. Um, and I did think, you know, he's somebody who's so tightly wound up and he and he usually just explodes doesn't he and the racket goes and and he'll say whatever he thinks well he just he hasn't even come close to doing that since then and he can't afford to but he also hasn't done it so i just i wonder whether actually this is in some really weird way has ended up aiding his his attempts at becoming the best player he can be that also incidentally is evidence that you know hot-headed tempers in the heat of the moment can be controlled with uh, with with rules and measures yeah. and consequences, yep. you know, when we're talking about all this, all these other acts of tempestuous, hot-headed racket abuse and all the rest of it, and in, endangering members of the crowd and court furniture and all the rest of it. Well, fines don't you know, work, do they? Make, this does make the consequences stiff enough, and it works. Yeah. Um, look, we'll have plenty of time to preview Zverev against Nadal. That's in three days' time. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, tennis podcast listeners. David here. 
Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it, but if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. We've got to move on to the women's draw and the two quarterfinals that we saw today, which feel like they happened an age ago because, surprise, surprise, they were the first two matches scheduled on Chatrier today. Um, let's talk about the first of them, the all-lefty clash between Martina Trevisan, who, at 28 years of age, is a Grand Slam semi-finalist. She beat Leila Fernandez 6-3 in the third today. 6-2, she took the first set. Lost the second 6-7 after having served for it. And there was a match point in that <laughs> second set where she went to serve and she smiled as she went to, to toss the ball in the air. And it was the most extraordinary moment. I don't know whether it was a genuinely instinctive smile. It was just how she felt in that moment. I, or whether it was one of those, um, you know, psychological acts of trickery where you know they say that if you smile it does actually make you feel better because something about using your facial muscles muscles releases endorphins and all of that stuff maybe it was you know she was trying to perform a trick on herself but I'd never seen anything quite like that moment didn't work she lost that point she lost that set and quite honestly I was expecting her to lose the match from yeah. that point on, possibly quite one-sidedly, especially against somebody like Leila Fernandez, who reaches a peak in de- deciding sets, doesn't she? Once she gets on that role in what's been a, a, a gritty, tough, tight match, she seems like an unstoppable force. I'm so impressed with how Chavisan wrestled back that match in the decider. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I thought the same. Uh, I was obviously aware that Fernandez was impeded by... Was it blisters that she she'd she'd got? Well, she had treatment to the bottom of her right foot uh, during the during the first set. Actually, she she had that treatment, um, and it did look look like blisters. But then she didn't come to press after the match. She she gave a very late time for press. That was then pushed back by an hour, and that was then replaced by an announcement that she wouldn't be coming to press at all due to that foot injury oh dear um we don't know no more than that but that suggests more than blisters i mean it did looking at the match it did seem to have an impact on what was going on out there but at the same time i agree psychologically that is a heck of an achievement from trevisan who's look she's been on this incredible nine match winning streak hasn't she but this is such a big deal chance to get through to a grand slam semi-final you're on the brink you don't win the set and you don't collapse, fair play. 
Yeah. And even in that final set, she was a double break up and Fernandez got one of the breaks back and started swinging, got a couple of points on Trevisan's serve as she tried to serve it out for the second time. I was just thinking, how do you beat Leila Fernandez? She's so, so tough. Um, but Trevisan, Trevisan's probably got the more naturally suited clay court game. And I, I did think that told a little bit, I suppose. You know, the, she's got the top spin forehand, whereas Fernandez's is very flat. And I, f- I really felt like Trevisan hit that shot extremely well. It was also interesting seeing Fernandez as a favourite in a big match. You know, her her US Open run was absolutely characterised by the fact that she was the underdog, kind of in all the matches. You know, you think Osaka, Kerber, Sabalenka, she beat them in three sets. And it seems that I think still at this stage in her career, that role suits her perhaps a little bit better. There was, there was definitely something missing from mm. Fernandez today. And I'm sure the foot was a contribution there as well. But... Trevisan, I mean, yeah, you mentioned that, that well, now 10-match winning streak she's on, I think. Just, it's so hard to know because we've just seen it so many times before whether winning a title beforehand is actually a, a marker that you're going to do well in a Grand Slam or not, you know. See Karolina Pliskova virtually every year. She comes in <laughs> to a Grand Slam having just won the title before, but it doesn't seem to lead anywhere. And yet, Trevisan has carried that form through and she's come through a section of the draw that had Jabur and Zachary and Anisimova and Raducanu. That was the section, isn't it? Going back to our preview show, that was the, oh my gosh, what blockbuster name is coming through that section? Exactly. Martina Trevisan. <laughs> she has stuffed it up them all. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't yeah. it? It's, she's yeah. a good player. I mean, Really enjoy watching her actually, and uh, she's got that low center of gravity, hasn't mm. she? And those such strong legs. She's so yeah, she's so strong looking. And I loved her celebration. Just she's so so happy, and and also because she she kind of you could see how tight she was in that last game. So what did she do? She sort of hit through it and roared through it by just kind of uh, shouting out her her nerves. <laughs> at the top of her lungs and it just seemed to to get them out after each winning shot the last three points she was at the top of her lungs just um just letting everybody know how tense she was but how happy she was she, she did here's another winner in her first ever grand slam semi-final she will face another first time grand slam semi-finalist 18 year old coco goff she defeated Sloane Stephens 7-5-6-2 today in a, in a cracking match. Such high quality, this one. I was, I was desperate for more of it. Um, 6-2 certainly doesn't do that second set justice. It, it felt far closer than that to me anyway. And yet Coco Goff was, was fantastic today. I, I've, I've written here, the, these are the notes I made during the match, that it didn't feel like youth versus experience. It felt like experience versus more experience you know Coco Goff deployed her experience at the ripe old age of 18 today she deployed her experience wisely she has been on tour playing big Grand Slam matches for three years now and it showed it did and she's actually at this stage in her career where she's got 
both. She's got the fearlessness of youth and some experience now. You know, I think I heard the other day. I can't remember whether it's she's whether it's that she's played a hundred matches or that she's won a hundred matches. But either way, there's a significant number there. And you know, in in the way that I said I felt Carlos Alcaraz looked young today, I thought Coco Goff looked poised and experienced and mature. And if we compare this to her Roland Garros quarterfinal last year, where she lost in straight sets to Barbora Krejcikova, that was a match filled with nerves. She was very, very tight in that match. And she actually served for the first set in that one and never really recovered. This one, she served for the first set, got broken and didn't let it phase her. She then improved, actually, as the match went on. And I felt like it was a stunning, stunning performance. The forehand held up. That's so often the, the sort of stroke that you look at, which might break down. The backhand is an absolute gem of a shot, the way she can lean on that and dictate with is it that. on the list? Do you know it isn't on the list, but the list isn't a list of the best backhands. It's not laminated. We've been over that. It's, well, it isn't all to do with being the best. I think Coco Goffs would be on a list of the best five, probably, in women's it tennis at the moment. It doesn't please you as much as others. Exactly. It doesn't extract the face. Mm. Mm. But it's an incredible shot. It, it was it was just so mature. Again, it's not a very sexy word, is it, mature? But for an eighteen-year-old, maybe it is. That it's, maybe that's the highest praise you can give her. And P.S. What she, you know, everything she said after the match was amazing, wasn't it? You know, uplifting stuff about what she's learned about just being yourself and valuing yourself and not placing all your self-worth on how you perform on a tennis court or. Um, in certain sp- spheres of life, she said, I know I'm a good person and that that matters to me more than anything else. Um, and she 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 weathered the ups and downs of Sloane Sloan Stevens That's... today so well. But it must be a nightmare playing Sloane Stevens Stevens because you go through a period where you're just going, oh, she's the best player in the world, so there's <laughs> nothing I can do here. And then suddenly she's lost her range altogether and... It's a lot of adjustments t- to make. That's exactly what I was going to say as well, because there was a period in that first set where Stevens was coming back where she didn't miss a ball for minutes, Stevens. She was hitting it hard, but hitting it with margin. It was the best Stevens you could imagine. And that Stevens, this tournament, has won 12 games in a row twice. You know, Jill Teichman couldn't stop that Sloane Stevens. Serana Castea couldn't stop that Sloane Stevens. And yet Goff managed it. And I, I, I truly think that it was down to Goff that Stevens wasn't able to keep it going, keep it running as she had. I, I felt like Goff stayed with her. And yeah, I was I was I was blown away by all aspects of Goff's game today. She's she's so much better than she was. She has yeah. improved massively. Mm. It was oh, it was a, it was a wonderful match. I could, I could watch that match several times over. I, I wish there'd been more of it. The the sound coming off the racket from both players was so crisp and deep. It was it was really joyful hitting. Oh, I wish there'd been more of it as well, because then I might have won in three sets and got my third <laughs> prediction in a row right. Mm. But oh no. The, the role has been curtailed. Not, it's no longer a streak. I've not had the best day. It's a comeback. <laughs> On the predictions front. No. 
Well, maybe you and I think definitely Sloane Stevens are thinking about the volley that she missed in the second set on, on break point. It's the 3-1 service the game. Goff game. serving 3-1 up. Opportunity for Sloane Stevens to break back and she should have done. It's 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 as open goal volley as you're mm. going to get and she just... Well, she hit it long, didn't she? Yeah. I think. I mean, she had to get it past Goff, but she just overhit it, and it was a turning point. That's the one she'll be seeing in her in her nightmares mm. tonight. Probably right now, actually, because it's three twenty nine a.m. What on earth are we doing with our lives? <laughs> uh, making podcasts for you is the yeah. answer to that. Let's tell you what you've got to look forward to later on today. <laughs> Coming up from midday, Veronica Kudamatova against Daria Kazakina, who's barely been losing games this tournament. I mean, Kudamatova, watch out. Then it is Iga Sviontek, the top seed, of course, on a 32-match winning streak, taking on Jessica Bagula, the 11th seed. Um, I think we've all... We talked about that match-up yesterday, didn't we? We... We fear for for Pagula a little bit as brilliantly as she's as she's been playing. It's it's not necessarily a pretty matchup for her, but we'll see. We'll see. And the double is still on for Jessica Pagula as things stand, and also for Coco Goff. They're they're playing together in the doubles, and they won today. And if you'd like to know more about that, folks, there is a stat related to that fact in the newsletter oh, great. today. I haven't and seen it's, that uh, it's a good one. I do love folks. that they're playing doubles together. I love, yeah. I love that singles players having success are still in the doubles. It's great. Mm. Agreed. It's brilliant. I watched watched bits and bobs of that doubles match today because Matt had it on his, um, his screen in the press room because uh, the publication of his stats depended on Pagula and Goff winning. So he was... <laughs> heavily invested. It was a, it was a very Al- tense Al- time. Zverev was headed for a fourth set tiebreak and Matt sitting there watching round three doubles. It was um there was a lot there was a lot going on. Um <laughs> but yeah it was great and they were invested in it and it's all it's great vibes. It's all good stuff. Third on Chatrier tomorrow, Andre Rublev against Marin Cilic, who's just in the form of his life. I mean standing in Rafa Nadal's way. I mean I I can't go against Marin Cilic <laughs> now. I mean, he's, he's, I don't know, new man. Or maybe the same man he was briefly in 2014. Who knows? We'll find out tomorrow. Will it last? <laughs> Under the lights tomorrow night. It is the all-Nordic clash. This has been deemed the match of the day, folks, which is how they build the night sessions. Uh, they've considered women a women's match the match of the day once in 10 days at this tournament if tomorrow if we want night. to ask Gamli Marisma about it, we've got to be there in six hours. Yep, that is our one and only opportunity to speak to Amelie Marismo, and it is literally six hours from now. Casper um, Ruud against Holger Rune uh, is not before 8.45pm tomorrow night after the DJ has finished his set. So that's what you got to look forward to tomorrow. It has been quite a day in Paris today. Um, we've we've loved it. It is it's 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 a treat and a privilege to to be there for for matches like we got to witness today. Um, we hope we've done it justice 
on this podcast. We've still got more quarterfinals to go, semi-finals. Before that, though, we've got to go to the bed, haven't we? <laughs> David, have. David looks very much like he needs to go to the bed. So let's get this show off the road with our mascots. We've got Cooper... Lovely, lovely cat, Cooper, our Hi, Cooper. Roland Garros mascot. Hey, Cooper, we've got our mascots. We haven't, we haven't done good things for them today. Sorry, Darwin. Every single person in our predictions competition in the newsletter got nul point today. It was a. Oh, it I feel was, better now. It was, a, it was a day of the unexpected. Tomorrow. So is apologies the day. to Carter, Darwin, and uh, the dearly departed Gerald the cat. Uh, Billie Jean took herself off to bed in around about set two of Nadal versus Djokovic. So she's been in the bed for ages. She's sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. Did she take her radio with her? No. All right, fine. No, she she likes some quiet time. Mm, Okay, fine. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Um, We have our executive producers, Chris Albert-Lee and Kyle Weingartner. They are both top blokes. Hey! And we have some late-night shout-outs, Matt. We do. We have Mary McCarvey in Ayrshire. Oh, how are we spelling Mary? M-A-I-R-I. And then they put in brackets, Mary, so I know how to pronounce it. Oh. Oh, very helpful. Indeed. In Ayrshire, lovely. Mm. Probably very nice this time of year. Less nice in January, maybe, but nowhere's nice in January. Australia. Where is Ayrshire versus like Glasgow and Edinburgh and Aberdeen? Further north, is I think. Mm, and west, right? It's in mm. the west. Oh, okay. Thanks very much, Mary, for very being beautiful, our friend. I think. Ayrshire. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Lovely. We also have Catherine Gillespie in Wimbledon. Oh, Catherine. Catherine's coming out of our ears. How are we spelling this, Matt? It's a Catherine with a K. Yep. K and an E. A K and an I. K and an I. Marvellous. Closer, closer to my pew in the church. <laughs> there are a lot of G- Gillespies in football, but the, I yes. can't think of any Gillespies in tennis. No. There's a Keith and a Gary. Lots of tennis ten- people in, in Wimbledon, football. though. Catherine's from Wimbledon. Yeah. Mm. Just down the road from me. Which Catherines have been tennis players? Cathy Rinaldi? Does that count? She was a K. Is a K. <laughs> Um, why can't I think of any Catherines? Come on, of See? course there have been Catherines. You're both staring at me like I should have one at my fingertips. You should. Most disappointed. Anyway, Catherine, thank you for being our friend. Thank you, Catherine. Great name, of course. Great hometown. Great all round. Thanks, Catherine. Where's she from again? Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Wimbledon, yeah, very nice. Finally, we've got... Ismail Betancourt in Western Florida. Hello, Ismail. Now, Juan Betancourt is Paola Badosa's boyfriend with the arms. Yeah. Could this be a relation? Ismail, how are your arms? (laughs) (laughs) Not like Juan's. I don't think he was born with those arms. I don't think... No. Those arms necessarily mean that all Betancourt family members... <laughs> Hereditary I think, arms. I think he might have... He might have worked. He might have played some golf. He might have played <laughs> a bit of golf. Anyway, Ishmael, 
Thank you very much for being a friend of the Tennis Podcast. It is thanks to you and other friends of the pod that we're out here in Paris talking about tennis at close to four o'clock in the morning. And there is nowhere we'd rather be. So thank you ever so much to all of you for being friends of the show. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't already. Leave us an iTunes review, all that jazz. And we'll speak to you all tomorrow. 